Then let spring and summer now begin. And let not winter return. Everybody, welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings on Prime. We're looking at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation, with a special focus on Amazon's upcoming big-budget adaptation of The Legendarium. I'm joined today by your host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Lobelia Sackville Baggins. And I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Saruman the White. Listen to my voice. Do what I say. Give me back my spoons. Oh, gosh. On today's pod, uh, we're talking about budget updates and discussing the potential female director for Lord of the Rings on Prime. Then, our main topic, we are continuing our discussion of Aldarion Narendis, the Mariner's wife from the Unfinished Tales. So love is in the air, and a wedding day has finally arrived. It's time to celebrate. So before we get started, if you like what we're doing here and you want to support us, please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and share us with your friends on social media. Uh, Doing that will help other Tolkien fans to find us, and we love connecting with this community, so please smash that subscribe button. Smash, smash, smash. And email us. Smash, smash, (laughs) smash. And, oh, yes, and email us. We really, we have received some correspondence, and we're so excited about it. So if you have anything to say, please get in touch. Um, And that being said, we're going to jump right into our news. So drumroll, please. Our female director... It's widely speculated that it is Charlotte Brandstrom. So Fellowship of the Fans, whom we follow religiously, broke this news um, that Charlotte Brandstrom is is indeed involved in uh, Lord of the Rings on Prime as the final director for the final episodes of the Now, who is Charlotte Brandstrom? Who is she? Well, she is is an Emmy-nominated 61-year-old Swedish-French director. So she's worked on quite a few shows. She has uh, a pretty impressive resume and it looks like shows are her specialty. So she has worked on The Witcher. Um, she directed, I think, a few episodes of The Witcher, which is on Netflix. Not sure she Have wasn't that at the top of her resume. Yeah. I'm not, I was not impressed with The Witcher. I, I don't was think anybody little, was impressed. <laughs> I was <laughs> underwhelmed. It yeah. was disappointing. Um, she worked on Arrow. I have not seen Arrow personally. Um, she worked on Outlander. I kind of like Outlander. People um, love she's Outlander. On, yeah. You like Outlander? I, I no, I haven't seen it, but just people love it. It's kind of like a bit of a. It's got a real cult following. Yeah, I only watched a few episodes and got sidetracked, but I thought it was decent. Um, she's worked on Grey's Anatomy, so quite a few shows under her belt. And um, I'm I, yeah, I'm so excited that they have uh, a woman on board and that we're going to get that perspective and you know in the in the beginning of this podcast Michael you had said oh I hope that we just get different different perspectives and reimaginings of this world and we're certainly going to get it because um there's been such variety and flavor different flavors in these um directors that they brought on board so undoubtedly we're going to get uh, a different interpretation and um so I should say uh this is all our information, again, is coming from Fellowship of the Fans, but uh, Amazon has not confirmed this. So this does not come straight from right. Amazon, but we have a lot of intel that says she's working on it. Um, one being that her French agency has on their website that she is working on a confidential series on Amazon in 2020. Uh, so we can all speculate what that series is. Um 
And this is this one I find pretty funny. So she posted a picture on her Instagram on April 17th, which was a picture of Auckland from her t- hotel room. Um, and she cap- captioned it Auckland evening. Big um, mistake. You can't post stuff she, on social media when you're yeah. on set, So then basically. she deleted it like immediately, um, which it's kind of funny, like imagining like if she, whether or not she got contacted, got in trouble, or right, if she just right. decided, recognized her error and deleted it right away. Um, but people, you know, the you've got a lot of internet sleuths out there waiting to pounce on stuff like this because they won't give us any information about the show. Once something's so, posted, it's never really gone from the internet. You know, once it's no, out there, it's no permanent. It a warning to all you. Yeah, to all you Gen Zers, yeah, everything's permanent. <laughs> they probably know that better than we do. Well, um, and I think it, Fellowship of the Fans said that they like just happened to catch it, like they woke up and 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 saw it. And they were like, they took a screenshot of it, and they're probably the only ones who who saw it and caught it, and so that they posted it in their in their video explaining why they thought that uh, she would be a director. So just good timing on that one. Really good timing. Um, also, her Twitter is rife with evidence. Some of this I just went and looked up myself, too. Um, she follows Lord of the Rings on Prime. She follows Patrick McKay, one of the showrunners. And then some of the and actors. they follow her who, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of the actors from Lord of the Rings on Prime also follow her. Mm-hmm. So it seems pretty obvious to me, like, how many people are following Lord of the Rings on Prime and Patrick McKay only follows, you know, a small number of people. Right, right. So because yeah. we follow Lord of the Rings on Prime, but they ain't following us back. They ain't following us back. Nope. <laughs> Maybe someday. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, regardless, it's it's really cool to know that she was flying out there and that she's quite possibly doing the final two episodes. And um I think, yeah, I'm gonna go back and review some of her previous work some of those episodes, mm-hmm. but um, regardless, you know, exciting, different yeah, I perspectives. Like that, I like that she is clearly very experienced. She's, you know, been in the industry for a long time, worked on a lot of different shows, so she knows how to step into an established franchise, an established theme, you know, a machine that's already running and and direct an episode or two. Um, so she's clearly got a lot of experience doing that, and that's obviously going to be necessary here. This is going to be a massive machine, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but a, a lot of different departments already working overtime, things in place, and she's got to step in and direct an episode effectively or a couple episodes effectively. And she's got experience doing that. Um, also with not just established shows, but established fantasy franchises, The Witcher, a big budget adaptation of a beloved fantasy franchise. Arrow. She clearly you know, has a type. Yeah, well, I, you know, there's Grey's Anatomy too, which is that's a totally different type. But um, she did Arrow, which is in the, the you know Batman universe, the DC Comics universe, um, Outlander, which is a period piece. It's kind of got a fantasy bent to it. So um, she's got some stuff under her belt that I think will some experience that will help with this particular series with Lord of the totally. Rings. Totally, so, and I, neither I of us guessed her. She was not on our radar, Michael. No, not at all. Well, she, we she speculated big, wildly about yeah, who it would be. And I think we were focused mostly on movie directors, you know, famous female directors that had done movies. And she doesn't have a lot of that experience. She's, like you said, mostly in the television arena, which, of course, that makes sense. This is a television show. You know, we probably should have been looking more at television directors, but that's why we missed her. And the real question is, does she have a Swedish accent or a French accent? So we know, just so we know. (laughs) 
We'll have to find out in the interviews. So that when we do our impressions of her, we, we get the accent be right. Be accurate. <laughs> I mean, you know we're going to watch all that behind the scenes, how we made this episode right, after right. the season airs. So I'm eager to I to hope hear. that they do that. You know how HBO- <laughs> Oh, they uh, have uh, to do it. Game of they Thrones always did that after every oh, yes. episode. I loved- oh, yes. And that was kind of unique to Game of Thrones. And I love that they did that. Uh, oh I my gosh. I was obsessed. Too. It was such yeah. good insight. But they were walking such a tightrope, like- Thinking back, there were so many twists and things that they had to not spoil. And here the showrunners are, after every episode, talking about the last episode, giving insights. But they can't give their insights in such a way as to tip anyone off about anything that's coming next. And Crazy. I'm, I'm in the process, actually, of rewatching Game of Thrones. And just what a, what a difficult tightrope to walk. Uh, so difficult because they're, you know, in the arc, they have beautiful arcs in that storyline. And the actions of these characters sometimes only make sense with the end in mind. And right. so, yeah, you're so right. And I also just enjoy, you know, the extra insight, like peek behind the curtain of how they're thinking about these characters and how they're thinking about this story. And um, what we're supposed, what the takeaway is supposed to be, what was the intended takeaway? Does that line up with what we got? Like, yeah, I enjoyed it so much, and I hope, I really hope they do some behind the scenes for Lord of the Rings as well. Absolutely. Well, I said that Amazon's Lord of the Rings is going to be a big machine, and recently we learned exactly how big uh, this machine is going to be big enough to make even Saruman jealous. Uh, it was widely reported. <laughs> nice. That uh, from the uh, New Zealand's like foreign minister did an interview where he revealed that the amount of money Amazon would be spending, we already knew it was going to be kind of a disgusting amount of money, but now we know exactly how disgusting. $650 million in New Zealand currency, uh, which is about $464 million US dollars. That's their budget for season one. And that is on top of the $250 million they already spent just acquiring the rights. That so, is crazy to me. Just an absurd amount of money. And and to put that into perspective, uh, Game of Thrones in season eight, okay, this is when it was at its most popular and the episodes were the most spectacular and the budget was the biggest, about 15 million per episode, 15 million per episode, which works out to about 150 million for the whole season. Uh, well, let's see, there were like eight episodes, I think, in season eight. So even less than that, we're talking about 120 million, 120 million. Lord of the Rings has got 464 million into season one. That just, I mean, that's almost uh, uh, three, four times as much uh, of a budget. I mean, what are they even going to do with all that money? If we got Game of Thrones season eight for, uh, you know, 15 million I mean, an episode. It makes me nervous, Michael. It makes me nervous. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm, I get nervous that these directors are just real flashy bros who want a lot of special effects and CGI and are relying too heavily on that. Whereas I would really prefer them to just focus on the story and mm -hmm. the characters and have less like flash and pomp and circumstance and more substance. Because I think that was what happened with season eight. Like I think they sacrificed right. a lot. And a big budget means nothing. It, it all comes down to taste. Like I don't know if these guys have, you know, the have uh, what it takes to make a quality story. Like it remains to be seen. I hope so. But um, yeah, I don't know. For some reason, this makes me nervous. Like a lot of people have said the opposite, that this is encouraging. Like, wow, they're right. really investing in this show and they want to do it right and they're spending what it takes and maybe it's more expensive because they're making it in New Zealand. But I don't know. I I am a little nervous that they're just sinking 
a ton of money into it and not being thoughtful enough about other aspects. But, you know, I maybe I'm wrong. We'll no, see. I, I think I agree with you wholeheartedly. I agree with your concerns. In my opinion, creativity uh, is fostered by some constraints. Um, some of the most creative works of a lot of artists occur early in their career when they're having a hard time. Um, and I mean, look at the Soviet era out. Lord of the Rings, <laughs> for example. <laughs> exactly. No, you're, exactly. You're so right, Michael. You, you know, I, I, we, I think you can point to a lot of established series and, and see uh, a lot of franchises and see how they suffer when there cease to be any sort of restrictions placed on them. Let's look at Star Wars, for example. George Ugh. Lucas. I don't know if you're a big That's, Star Wars that fan. That is the prime example. Thank you. Yeah, I mean- George Lucas, the first trilogy obviously is great, but I th- I think it was benefited by the fact that in the early movies he had to collaborate. He had he brought other directors in. Uh, for example, Empire Strikes Back, he didn't direct it. There's another director. That was the best of the original trilogy, for example. Um, but then we fast forward and he does the prequel series. And at this point, Star Wars is just a phenomenon and he's the golden boy and he has carte blanche to do whatever he wants. And he writes everything. He directs everything. He has total, total creative control, which I think a lot of creative people generally want and think that will make things better. But because there's no one else in the room who's who can stand up to George Lucas and say, hey, maybe we should tighten this scene up. Hey, maybe uh, Jar Jar Banks ain't such a good idea. Uh, you start getting this kind of the three movies where the script is terrible, um, scenes are blocked really awkwardly, and they're just rife with problems. And you know there are redeeming elements of the the prequels. I'm not totally hating on them, but they just don't. I am totally at all compare to the original. I, I'm totally hating on them. They were terrible. <laughs> no, absolutely. But you know what's terrible. funny? It, people who grew up watching the prequels first, they love them. That they're still beloved by by that generation. So there's a younger generation that watched the prequels as early or before the original movies, and they love them. They think they're great. So maybe it's just a generational they're thing. They're misguided. Of what you grow up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you're probably right. I, they're wrong. They're wrong. Yeah. I think, um, you know, to counter our fears, like there are so many writers working on this that I trust, and that's the one thing that I'm clinging to mm-hmm. is that this project – is back like at least the writing we know will most likely be quality and that's that's what we care about yeah there are some great writers from some of my favorite shows um you know writers from better call saul uh hannibal i mean some just great shows great writers absolutely but you know this is just could be a totally different animal and if amazon is handing you basically a blank check and saying make me the the biggest baddest most amazing blockbuster of a show even those writers might be thinking we got to do something different let's take advantage of of this money let's write scenes we can never otherwise write with that will require a big budget so you know it could cause the writing to expand to fill the budget <laughs> to sort of twist an old phrase you know work expands to fill the time the the writing could expand and the scope of the show and the nature of the plot could change just to fill the budget Hey, we've got a budget. We got to use it. Um, yeah, and that, and, could, and that could be a negative thing. That's true, and it also this world does require really specific, um, fantastical elements, right? It mm-hmm. does require some degree of CGI, and um, if it's you know special effects that are quality, so 
I but we won't get to for context though. The original Lord of the Rings movies, the Peter Jackson movies. How much you want to guess those cost? Total budget, three films. I have no idea. Not not nearly as much. Not nearly as two hundred and eighty million for three films. Yeah, see, I guess that's where I'm like, you know what? He did it he did it right because he really focused on the characters, the story, and kept it simple. It was almost like let's utilize this amazing landscape that's just here for us. Mm-hmm. It works so well. We're gonna build beautiful sets that look realistic in this gorgeous setting and we're gonna keep it keep it simple, stupid. That's a yeah. good motto. Um, well, and you know, to to go back to our examples, we talked about Star Wars. I think that Peter Jackson is another perfect example. The original series, there were some budgetary constraints. I mean, two hundred eighty million for three blockbuster movies is actually not that's not a big budget at all, especially now by modern like Marvel standards, where the budget has blown up even more. That's like you know less than a hundred million dollars per movie. That's not a big budget for for a, a big blockbuster. But so it's kind of a little bit more like an indie film in terms of scale, um, ironically. But then you fast forward, okay, he's won an Oscar. These were massively successful and popular. Let's do The Hobbit. Um, and there uh, are a number of reasons- Which was a disaster. Why, yeah. why The Hobbit wasn't so great. But one of the things I really disliked was the excessive use of CGI. Um, yep. You know, he did amazing special effects with Gollum, but in the first series, so he did great special effects- but he used more uh, makeup and prosthetics. You know, Weta Workshop did a lot of work, and I thought the original trilogy benefited from that. But then this, you know, the Hobbit series, he had Azog, who was like a lot of CGI, and it just suffered. It didn't look, it didn't look nearly as good. It I, I hate movies terrible. that rely on CGI. Yeah, and my hope for this story, yeah, it's just so hard to execute some of these creatures well, mm-hmm. and I think using real people versus totally CGI was so brilliant on Peter Jackson's part right. because it's more realistic, you know, for me it, it works. It like yeah, the Hobbit I was totally checked out. Um it it just looked fake and overwrought. Um uh, uh. so yeah, we're I still have my fingers crossed because I think the stories of the second age are really compelling and there are characters that will be really relatable. Um, and less of the fantastical elements, like they'll be present, but they won't dominate. So I, right. yeah, I remain skeptical, but still hopeful. Um, and on that note, we will continue. Speaking our- of speaking of compelling plot lines from the Second Age, let's. Yes, exactly. We're we're diving right back into um, our compelling plot line. So to pick up where we left off, uh, Aldarion is at war with himself right now, and he's betrothed to Arendus, but he's longing to go back out to sea. That sea longing is hitting him again. Um, he's spent spending a lot of time with his guild adventurers, his boys club, uh, and there's no wedding talk going on at this point, which is kind of unusual, and it's starting to get a little... He's starting to get some funny looks from people on the street. So his father, the king, calls Aldarion into his chambers, uh, one day for uh, a heart to heart, and Aldarion tells his father that the sea longing has come upon him again. Uh, he, he sort of bears a soul to his dad and, and lets him know what's going on. So we're going to read that passage. Then Menelder was grieved and pitied his son, but he did not understand his trouble, for he himself had never loved ships, and he said, "Alas, 
but you are betrothed, and by the laws of Numenor and the right ways of the Eldar and Adain, a man shall not have two wives. You cannot wed the sea, for you are affianced to Orendis. Then Aldarion's heart was hardened, for these words recalled his speech with Orendis as they passed through Amerie, and he thought, but untruly, that she had consulted with his father. It was ever his mood, if he thought that others combined to urge him on some path of their choosing, to turn away from it. Smiths may smithy, and horsemen ride, and miners delve, when they are betrothed, said he. Therefore, why may not mariners sail? If smiths remain five years at the anvil, few would be smiths' wives, said the king. And mariners' wives are few, and they endure what they must, for such is their livelihood and their necessity. The king's heir is not a mariner by trade, nor is he under necessity. There are other needs than livelihood that drive a man, said Aldarion, and there are yet many years to spare. Nay, nay, said Menelder, you take your grace for granted. Arendus has shorter hope than you, and her years wane swifter. She is not the Lion of Elros, and she has loved you now many years. She held back well nigh twelve years when I was eager, said Aldarion. I do not ask for a third of such a time. She was not then betrothed, said Menelder. But neither of you are now free, and if she held back, I doubt not that it was in fear of what now seems likely to befall if you cannot master yourself. In some way, you must have stilled that fear, and though you may have spoken no plain word, yet you are beholden, as I judge. Then Aldarion said in anger, It were better to speak with my betrothed myself, and not hold parley by proxy. And he left his father. And so we're going to stop it there. And this is just another example of Alderion being kind of a prick. Yeah, such a prick. I mean, his his father's like, come on, son, giving him the talk. Um, and once again, he's stubborn. He's, you know, I do what I want. Nobody tells me what to do. Um, and this, yeah, this is frustrating, this attitude, because he's like a lot older now like he was this way as an adolescent just like his character has not undergone the growth that you would hope by now right right. (laughs) he's sort of the same as he was ever the same person that he was at the beginning like we want to see growth in our main characters we're just not getting that right and we've talked about this before this is a key part of his character that if he feels like someone is pushing him one direction, he will go the other direction just to spite that person or not necessarily to spite that person, but just because he doesn't want to be pushed. And uh, this, you know, begs the question, why isn't his wise father just reverse psychology him? Come on. Simple. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's never going to get the message. But there's um, a there's a line in here that I wanted to call out uh, where – Menelder says, you cannot wed the sea for your affiance to horrendous. And then it says, then Aldarion's heart was hardened. And that word just sends off alarm bells in my head because if you read through the Lord of the Rings, I mean, there are, it's re- replete with examples of, and the Silmarillion, of a character's heart. When a character's heart is being hardened, that is a bad sign. It, it, Tolkien uses that word in particular, um, generally where, a character is ignoring wisdom, choosing a less wise path um, out of pride or some other character flaw. And that's basically what we're seeing here. Mm. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's it's uh, it's also used to foretell like that person's doom in some way, shape or form. Right. So, yeah, we see it with th- there are examples of it with Fianor. He hardens his heart against the advice of the Valar. 
Um, we see it with uh, uh, Alpharazon, the last king of Numenor, right before the downfall, when he's sailing to Amon to, to set foot on the you know the blessed land, the blessed realm, and winds are blowing against him. The storm is is blown against him, and for a moment he feels doubt, but then he hardens his heart and and moves forward, and that's basically that final decision. He had one final moment of doubt, but then he hardens his heart, blasts through it, and that leads to the ultimate downfall of Numenor. Yeah, this does not bode well. Um, So Aldarion, just after this, he immediately goes to Arendis to tell her of his desire to go out on another voyage, and she is very hurt. So she thought that he had come to discuss their long overdue wedding. So that's what she's anticipating. Can you imagine this scene playing out? Like, you know, her running to greet him with hope in her eyes. And then um, he, I'm going to read from the passage um, what Aldarion says to her. Not long after, he spoke to Arendus of his desire to voyage again upon the great waters, saying that he was robbed of all sleep and rest, but she sat pale and silent. At length, she said, I thought that you were come to speak of our wedding. I will, said Aldarion. It shall be as soon as I return. If you will wait. But seeing the grief in her face, he was moved, and a thought came to him. It shall be now, he said. It shall be before this year is done, and then I will fit out such a ship as the venturers made never yet, a queen's house on the water, and you shall sail with me, Arendus, under the grace of the Valar, of Yavanna, and of Romeo, who you love. You shall sail to lands where I shall show you such woods as you have never seen, where even now the Eldar sing or forests wider than Numenor, free and wild since the beginning of days, where still you may hear the great horn of Aroma the Lord. But Arendus wept. Nay, Aldarion, she said, I rejoice that the world yet holds such things as you tell of, but I shall never see them, for I do not desire it. To the woods of Numenor my heart is given, and alas, if for love of you I took ship, I should not return. It is beyond my strength to endure, and out of sight of land I should die. The sea hates me, and now it is revenged that I kept you from it, and yet fled from you. Go, my lord, but have pity, and take not so many years as I lost before. That is a really heartbreaking scene. Just like... I, I sympathize so much with Arendis that she's mm-hmm. waiting, you know, for him to talk about their wedding. And she's been so patient and she really, truly loves him and wants him to be fulfilled and have what he wants. But she's also on a timeline here. And, you know, she says, take pity, take not so many years as I lost before. Like she's waited for him before. And now she's back in this same position. Um, right. And she was but hoping think- that this time would be different, that he would master himself and stay longer. And, she, you know, you can see, like you said, at the start of the scene, you can just imagine she's so hopeful that, you know, we're betrothed now. We're going to have this happy. We're going to get married. It's different now. And then she realized this is the conversation that sort of shatters that that bubble, shatters that dream. And she realizes, no, he's not over it. He's going to go again. And she could be really mad here. She could be really angry, but she, she doesn't do that. She kind of gracefully gives him an out and lets him go. 
I love that she has the self-awareness to say, because he's saying, come with me, like be my queen, I'll build you a grand ship. Like he's he's sort of wooing her in a way, but she has the self-awareness and wherewithal to say like, I, I cannot go, I would not return. Like I would, if I gave myself entirely over to you and your passions and what you want to do, I would suffer. Um, but I do find her language really interesting and in that it's so strong. The sea hates me and now it is revenged that I kept you from it. Like the sea truly is the third character in their marriage. It's the, you know, it is the, the lover. It's the other woman. Yeah. It is the other <laughs> woman in their, in their union. It really is too uh, bad. I mean, you know, it, it, I feel like I'm watching the, the rom-com where you just want to yell at the characters and be like, this is so easy. You can make it work. Like, you can go with him for a while and then he'll stay on land with you for a while like he's been doing the past few years. Why can't you guys just, you know, share in each other's passions and make these sacrifices and go back and forth for each other? But they just they, – they can't do that. You know, she she won't do the C at all. She just won't do it and he can't give it up. It's like, uh, you know, unstoppable force meets a, an immovable object. Exactly. <sighs> so – Basically, um, Aldarion realizes afterwards that she has not conspired with his father as he thought, um, and he feels ashamed. But he does go in peace, and um, and I love that that you know he had thought he he's a guy who hates being pushed around, so he perceives that people are trying to push him around when they're not. So he had that conversation with his dad, where his dad's trying to get him to stay. And so he convinces himself that Menelder and uh, Arendis had spoken privately to try and conspire to get him to stay, that they were sort of plotting and that Arendis had asked him to convince Aldarion to stay. Of course, none of that had happened. That, that hadn't happened at all. Um, and Aldarion realizes that after he talks to Arendis because Arendis is way more graceful and says, okay, you can go. And she cries and she's sad, but she, she lets him go. And he realizes, oh, shit, you know. <laughs> That hadn't happened. She wasn't conspiring with my father. Uh, and he, so he feels a little bit ashamed probably of how he talked to his father, probably again of, of deciding to leave, knowing that it would hurt horrendous. Um, but despite feeling that shame, he goes anyway. <laughs> so not enough to get him to stay. Right. And he leaves, but he leaves with her blessing. She once again lays the oilere on the prow of the ship, the traditional blessing of the voyage by the gods. And, she, you know, she's shedding tears. But at this point, um, you know, that's it. She's she's letting him go and um, letting him have his way, essentially. And it says that when he sails away, she hides her tears until the ship uh, passed out beyond the harbor walls, which I think is just a small little Tolkien's such a great writer and it just creates the image and you can really see she's stealing herself against the emotional wave that's coming upon her. So she doesn't want other people to see her tears. And so she hides her tears, doesn't want Eldarian to see them. Um, and that's, it's sad. It's, that's kind of a heartbreaking thing. It's sad. And it also makes me much more once again, sympathetic towards her and that she she is trying to, in a sense, be the bigger person and give a little bit, right? Right. She's not laying down. She's not putting your foot down and saying, you know, I forbid you from going. Like, 
even right. though he's left many times before and strung her out, strung her along for years at this point. Right. Um, well, and speaking of stringing her along for years, when he leaves for this voyage, he is gone for six years, six whole years. And it's longer than he intended this time because the haven at Venulonde is ruined. Um, he discovers that men near the coast have become hostile and destructive, so he has to contend with them. Um, and then even when he finally turns for home, a great wind comes out of the south and blows them north, and they're having all types of troubles getting home. So, Jen, why don't you? There's a passage here I want you to read um, about that. At last, the sea and wind relented, but even as Aldarion looked out in longing from the prow of the Paloran and saw far off the Menaltarma, his glance fell upon the green bough, and he saw that it was withered. Then Aldarion was dismayed, for such a thing had never befallen the bow of Olirin so long as it was washed with the spray. It is frosted, Captain, said the mariner who stood beside him. It has been too cold. Glad am I to see the pillar. When Aldarion sought out Arendis, she looked at him keenly, but did not come forward to meet him. And he stood for a while at a loss for words, as was not his wont. Sit, my lord, said Arendis, and first tell me of all your deeds. Much must you have seen and done in all these long years. Then Aldarion began haltingly, and she sat silent, listening, while he told of all the tale of his trials and delays. And when he ended, she said, I thank the Valar by whose grace you have returned at last, but I thank them also that I did not come with you, for I should have withered sooner than any green bough. Your green bough did not go into the bitter cold by will, he answered. But dismiss me now, if you will, and I think that men will not blame you. Yet dare I not to hope that your love will prove stronger to endure, even than fair Oyelare? So it does prove indeed, said Arendis. It is not yet chilled to the death, Aldarion. Alas, how can I dismiss you when I look on you again, returning as fair as the sun after winter? Then let spring and summer now begin he said, and let winter not return, said Arendis. Finally! They're Hooray! together! They're getting married! <laughs> yes, This is like, come. you know, it's sad. He's gone a long time. And there are like multiple instances of this of the story. He's gone a long time. She's bummed. You know, he's ashamed. He's annoyed that she's bummed. You know, th- but this time... He comes back and he he missed her. She missed him, and they they fully meet each other. Finally, there's no like Reunited misconnection here. And it feels so good. Yeah, they're together and they're finally getting married. Everyone's overjoyed, and the Eldar from Tol Erise attend the wedding, which is a very big deal. Well, they come decked out. Before we get to the wedding, I mean, we can't just <laughs> we can't just gloss over. <laughs> Never gonna finish this. We're, no, we're never gonna finish. I mean, the <laughs> this moment is a deep dive. We call it a deep dive for a reason. <laughs> keep digging the hole deeper. Um, <laughs> it's significant that the moment that they connect finally and decide, okay, now we're getting married. Right before that, the obvious, like metaphorical, symbolic imagery of the frozen oilare. I mean, oh yeah, and more foreshadowing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he's very meta about it. I mean, the, the character in the story, Aldarion in the story, sees the Oilare and compares her, you know, their relationship 
to that symbol. I mean, you know, and he says, I hope that your love is stronger than this YLRA and that it's not totally frosted. And she says, no. But of course, we're kind of in the audience getting a little uncomfortable. Like, you know, are you sure? <laughs> because yeah, the underlying like, problems haven't been solved. <laughs> uncomfortable laughs. Like, no, everything's right. fine. Right, right. Yeah, it uh, definitely does not bode well that that's like the gift from the gods and it's frozen and that's never happened before. Like, <laughs> strange things are happening. And last time they were on the sea, his ship was struck by lightning. Like, we've right, seen signs right. that, you know, that, his voyaging is not sanctioned by the gods. Yeah. When will you learn your lesson, boy? Yeah, he he's he's a slow learner this one. But let's um, say, let's ignore the foreshadowing for now. Let's in, ignore the symbolism and let's enjoy a good wedding party. We're going to enjoy the wedding. They finally get married. So there's a beautiful description of the Eldar um, who attend the wedding in a decked out ship. Uh, we're not going to read that, but we do want to read about the gifts that the Eldar bring. Um, So, Michael, do you want to read this passage? Many gifts the Eldar brought also. To Aldarion, they gave a sapling tree, whose bark was snow white, and its stem straight, strong and pliant as it were of steel. But it was not yet in leaf. I thank you, said Aldarion to the elves. The wood of such a tree must be precious indeed. Maybe, we know not, said they. None has ever been hewn. It bears cool leaves in the summer. And flowers in winter. It is for this that we prize it. To Arendus they gave a pair of birds, gray with golden beaks and feet. They sang sweetly one to another with many cadences never repeated through a long thrill of song. But if one were separated from the other, at once they flew together and they would not sing apart. How shall I keep them? said Arendus. Let them fly and be free, answered the Eldar, for we have spoken to them and named you, and they will stay wherever you dwell. They mate for their life, and that is long. Maybe there will be many such birds to sing in the gardens of your children. Okay, we should definitely talk about the significance of these gifts. And more, you know, we could save this discussion for later, but I just want to make note that these are important. These two gifts are mm-hmm. significant for both of them. Um, so I won't, I won't get into, I'll get into why in a bit. Um, but I think Michael wanted to mention you know, a fun fact about the Eldar because we skipped over the description of uh, them arriving in all their glory at the feast. Yeah. So th- there is one little detail that I liked, which is the Eldar, they come and their their ship is laden with elvish flowers so that when they're at the feast, they're all, they're all dressed up in flowers. I mean, this is, you know, fashion week in New York. This is fashion week in Paris. The elves are here. They're looking good. And they got all these great elvish flowers on them. And uh, one of which it says that uh, uh, they were crowned with Eleanor. Now, a footnote in the Unfinished Tales reminds us that Eleanor is a small golden star-shaped flower that grew upon the mound of Karen Amroth in Lothlorien. Now, Karen Amroth is a significant place because it is the mound upon which Aragorn and Arwen were betrothed, and it's also where Arwen finally gave up her life after Aragorn's death. Uh, and that's all in the appendices. And so, you know, I wonder, did Tolkien have this link in mind? Was he thinking about the significance of the presence of Eleanor, linking it to the relationship of Aragorn and Arwen, um, which was by all accounts a successful, uh, if tragic in the end, relationship, tragic because they feel the pain of mortality? Uh, Or is it just a total coincidence because 
it's an elvish flower, so it's going to show up in scenes where there are elves. I don't know. It could be the latter, but we do know that The Lord of the Rings was written before The Mariner's Wife was written, which I think in the 1960s is when the earliest draft showed up of The Mariner's Wife. Um, so it's very possible that you know he had already written The Lord of the Rings. He'd already written the appendices. He, he knew this link about Eleanor uh, being linked to Lothlorien and to Arwen and Aragorn. So it's very possible that that had some uh, subtle symbolic significance to to Tolkien, and that's why he included it. Oh, I love that discovery, and I love finding all these threads, thematic threads weaved throughout his works. I think it's so beautiful when you find things like that because they are sprinkled all over, and the Mariner is one of them. And oh, that's really cool. I hadn't even thought about that, Eleanor. And Eleanor is uh, such a beautiful name. Michael, I'm a, I'm a fan. Has a personal connection to this name <laughs> yeah it's uh, so i have a, a small uh, very young daughter that uh, we named eleanor and we did not name we did not spell it the same way it's uh we spelled it eleanor as in eleanor roosevelt whereas uh eleanor the flower is just e-l-a-n-o-r uh, eleanor roosevelt is e-l-e-a-n-o-r but nonetheless it, it gives me no small amount of joy to know that my daughter bears a name that is featured in lord of the rings and has a connection uh, of course rosie cotton um, the son of Samwise Gamgee. Um, uh, none of that made sense. Uh, Rosie Cotton, the wife of Samwise Gamgee, uh, they gave birth to a daughter, Eleanor Gamgee. Um, and we learned about that in the appendices. And Sam named her after uh, the Eleanor flower that he discovered in Lothlorien. So, um, and my next son will be named Kellum Brimbor. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, and I do want to just quickly go back because we did skip over the description of the wedding. Something had to go. But there are beautiful descriptions of the wedding in the book. There's singing in the streets. There's flowers. It is quite a celebration. So I also think were this to be made into a series, which we're hoping it is, you know, we'll finally get, we will get a high moment and a moment of um, joy and exuberance amidst a tale that is quite arguably a gothic novel. And I'll mm-hmm. make my case for that at some point uh, on this podcast. But yeah. it is, you know, it's dark, it's heavy, but we do get this real moment of joy and levity and a big celebration. And it, it does go into detail about that in the book. And I am, um, but- I'm picturing, you know, New Orleans during Mardi Gras. You know, flowers, singing in the streets. Everywhere, yeah. It says there are minstrels present and everything's laden with flowers and and singers. Um, Everybody's, yeah, everybody's partying. So, and a feast, a great feast. So, and people bringing gifts, you know, in the traditional way. So, yeah, I think this wedding scene could be really beautiful, beautifully depicted. So, Um, how about these gifts? So, yeah, I'm going to read the next section and then we'll talk a little bit about the gifts. So that night Arendus awoke, and a sweet fragrance came through the lattice, but the night was light, for the full moon was westering. Then leaving their bed, Arendus looked out and saw all the land sleeping in silver, but the two birds sat side by side upon her sill. When the feasting was ended, Aldarion and Arendus went for a while to her home, and the birds again perched upon the sill of her window. At length they bade Beragar and Nuneth farewell, and they rode back at last to Armenelos, for there by the king's wish his heir would dwell, and a house was prepared for them amidst a garden of trees. There the elven tree was planted, and the elven birds sang in its boughs. If only we could stop there. If only this tale was like 
a happy ever right. happily ever after like <laughs> and they, then they, they lived wrote happily off. ever after yeah the, the credits scroll and we can all just sigh and be content if only um so that doesn't happen but i want to talk about these gifts because i think these are really significant in that um Aldarion, let's look at what they were given. So Aldarion was given this sapling, this beautiful tree. Um, and it's 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 just the the elves who gifted it to him are describing it as precious. This is a precious uh, tree that is unhewn. It's never been hewn. It's wild. It's best left in its natural state. It's fair. It's tall. It's strong. I mean, who does this remind us of? So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is me? Just a metaphor for horrendous. Oh, and horrendous. I, horrendous. I'm talking about me. Sorry, go on. Go on. <laughs> Don't flatter yourself, Michael. And horrendous is given this pair of birds, right? These these essentially love birds. So these birds cannot be separated from one another. And they go everywhere together. And they, they're best together. They won't leave each other's side. And they sing the most beautiful songs together. So she is given a gift that is sort of this metaphor for a successful, beautiful relationship, the relationship that she wants. So both of these gifts become an albatross around the character's neck because we know, spoiler alert, this relationship is unsuccessful. They are both, you know, destroyed by this relationship and the trials um, in which it undergoes. And I just think that this literary device of using these um, gifts as an albatross mm-hmm. or the cross that they must both bear is is significant. And they the birds keep showing up throughout. And um, the tree is an obvious one because, you know, she loves trees. But I, I think that that description that the elves have um, of the tree also is like a beautiful description of horrendous. Like, listen, she was great. She was fine in her natural habitat you wooed her like you got her and what are you doing now you know so um i just wanted to note uh note that about the gifts there yeah. what what i really like about these gifts are that they each have a very important special quality that seems to sort of symbolize or be a metaphor for the other person and yet the person that the gifts are given to doesn't appreciate that quality uh, which is obviously a metaphor uh, for yes. the problems of the relationship. So the tree is, as you said, you know, um, straight, strong, and pliant, as it were, of steel. So you know, like you said, the tree is like horrendous and beautiful in its own way and for it itself, not because it's being used for anything. But what does Aldarion say? He says the wood of such a tree must be precious indeed. And the elves are like, that's not why we care about it. it we care about it because. Uh, it has cool leaves in summer and flowers in winter because it's beautiful all on its own. It has its own inherent quality. Uh, but Aldarion doesn't see that. He looks at the tree and his first thought is, boy, it must make some great wood. I bet I can make a good ship out of it. Exactly. And that's like the perfect illustration of his the, why they don't work, right? Right, right. And the flip side of that is for Arendis, um, so these birds, they fly freely. But what is Arendis's first question? She says, how shall I keep them? And the elves are like, you don't keep them. You let them, let them fly, fly and be free. free. Let them fly free. Which is, I guess, what Aldarion needs. You know, you can't keep him here to be what you want him to be. He's got to be free and do his own thing. And so just in this short passage, 
seeing the gifts that they're given and how they respond to them. It is really a microcosm It's uh, of the relationship. It's a symbol of the relationship. And it's Tolkien really lays it on thick with the symbolism in this story, but I love it. So we're going to move on. And they've been married for a little bit. So two years later from the book, Arendis conceived. And in the spring of that year, she bore to Aldarion a daughter. Even from birth, the child was fair and grew ever in beauty. The woman most beautiful, as old tales tell, that ever was born in the line of Elros, save Arzimraphel, the last. When her first naming was due, they called her Encalame. In heart, Arendis was glad, for she thought, Surely now Aldarion will desire a son to be his heir, and he will abide with me long yet. For in secret, she still feared the sea and its power upon his heart. And though she strove to hide it and would talk with him of his old ventures and of his hopes and designs, she watched jealousy, jealously, if he went to his house ship or was much with the venturers. To Iambar, Aldarion once asked her to come, but seeing swiftly in her eyes that she was not full willing, he never pressed her again. Not without cause was Arendis' fear. When Aldarion had been five years ashore, he began to be busy again with his mastership of forests, and was often many days away from his house. There was now indeed sufficient timber in Numenor, and that was chiefly owing to his prudence. Yet since the people were now more numerous, there was ever need of wood for building and for the making of many things beside. For in those ancient days, though many had great skill with stone and with metals, since the Edain of old had learned much of the Noldor, the Numenorians loved things fashioned of wood, whether for daily use or for beauty of carving. I love that little... uh Note on culture, by the way. Will we see some whittling in this uh, <laughs> season, perhaps? I just, I just um, want to see some some guy just sitting on his porch in a rocking chair, just whittling his stick. Yeah. Carving. What you whittling there? Ah, yeah. just a poking stick. Anytime yep. we get a little cultural snippet, I like it. Um, At that time, Aldarian again gave most heed to the future, planting always where there was felling, and he had new woods set to grow where there was room, a free land that was suited to trees of different kinds. It was there that he became most widely known as Aldarion, by which name he is remembered among those who held the scepter in Numenor. Yet to many beside Arendis it seemed that he had little love for trees in themselves, caring for them rather as timber that would serve his designs. Dun dun dun. I mean, yeah, she's like, he only cares about something to the extent that it furthers his wishes. Like his love only extends um, to the extent that you are, he's utilitarian, like he can utilize you somehow. Well, and we uh, see he, here some in-story validation of Arendus's opinion on that point. Other people right. see it too. It says here, you know, yet to many beside Arendus, it seemed that he had little love for trees in themselves. So other people are seeing this too. They're taking notice. That you know he's very utilitarian. He grows the trees just to cut them down, um, and that's you know noted by other Numenorians, not just horrendous. Yeah, and I mean that's her opinion of him. It's sort of changing for the worse. You can see it, you know, you can see it unfolding. So that's not good. I mean, at this point, he is still preoccupied with like making sure the forests are replenished and not being too obsessive with the sea and like taking his title of master of the forest seriously um but you know arendis is still nervous that at any second he's gonna bolt 
right? You know, and even though they have a child, um, you would think he'd want to stick around, but she can kind of see she's watching him get busier with his work and spending more time with the trees and building ships. And she can just see it, you know, year after year, uh, it's coming. I, it's reading this. You kind of feel like, you know, my stomach is tightening. It's like, you know, it's coming, you know, the dread. Well, this, this daughter is significant. We can talk more about her, but she, you know, she becomes a queen and she's, she's a significant player. Um, it's too bad that we don't get a complete narrative of her. Right. But I have ideas of how Uncolumne's <laughs> narrative could play out. Uh, but we'll get to that. Yeah, sa- save it. Save it because sh- she'll be growing up soon in this story. But um, so the next passage in the book. Not far otherwise was it with the sea. For as Nuneth had said to Orendus long before, Ships he may love, my daughter, for those are made by men's minds and hands. But I think that it is not the winds or the great waters that so burn his heart nor yet the sight of strange lands, but some heat in his mind, or some dream that pursues him. And it may be that she struck near the truth, for Aldarion was a man long-sighted, and he looked forward to days when the people would need more room and greater wealth. And whether he himself knew this clearly or no, he dreamed of the glory of Numenor, and the power of its kings, and he sought for footholds whence they could step to wider dominion. Dominion. I want to like find a way to underline that with my voice. Bold, underline, italics, dominion. That's another word. One, I, I got to come up with like a, a phrase for these words that just like make alarm bells go off because dominion is another word that is used frequently in Lord of the Rings, but always in a negative way. If you search the text, if you have like an ebook and you search the text of, you know, Fellowship of the Rings, Two Towers, Return of the King, and you search for dominion, you know, it'll show up a handful of times. And I think every single time it is in the context, used in the context of uh, talking about Sauron or the One Ring. There's no such thing as uh, uh, having dominion over someone in a good way. It's always Sauron or the One Ring that talks about dominion. So when it's used here, it is the same problem. It's not a good thing. You know, he doesn't realize it, but he has ambitions to uh, hold sway and increase his power and have dominion uh, yeah, for power, Numenor to have dominion over in other there peoples. Too. Yeah. Yeah, power and he wants, you know, the glory of Numenor and he's getting he's getting a little bit, yeah, restless and um thinking of acquiring greater wealth and these things that um are are yeah, very much frowned upon by uh the Tolkien universe. So And it really kind of I think should cause us to rethink the way that we've been perceiving Aldarion a little bit. Because this is kind of the first time, not the first time, I think there's another reference, but I think in prior episodes, we'd sort of talked about, hey, there's nothing necessarily wrong with loving the sea. And he just loves the sea. And it's, you know, he has this passion for sailing. And that's what's wrong with that. And the real problem is, it's not that his passion is wrong. It's that his passion is in conflict with uh, Arendis's character traits. So they're, they're just sort of yin and yang. They just don't mix. Uh, but there's not anything inherently wrong with either of them. It's just they don't mix. And then they're prideful. So they can't work it out. But this is sort of telling us something a little bit different, that Aldarion's passion for the sea, it's not really just a pure love of the sea. No. There, there is some you know, desire and ambition yeah. and greed underlying it all, You know, whether or not he knew it. It's subtle. And that sort of speaks to the corruptible hearts of men that I think is a theme throughout the, um, the Lord of the Rings. He has that quality and he doesn't even realize it, but he secretly wants dominion for wider dominion for Numenor. So I think that's interesting. 
So at this point, we're seeing Eldarion is returning to shipbuilding. He neglects his forestry a little bit, and, and he starts dreaming of a grand ship, which he commissions to have built. Uh, and the the men call it the Wooden Whale. And we learn here, it's, it's not actually called the Wooden Whale, but it sort of becomes the name that other people call it. And this is interesting. Jen, you, you pointed out when we were talking about this, that there, maybe there's something reminiscent here of Moby Dick, you know, the white whale. Yeah, chasing that, chasing that, um, that fleeting, you know, that great white whale that you're never quite going to catch um, to your detriment. Right. And Arendis sees this sort of mad obsession in Aldarion and, and starts to confront him. What is all this busyness with ships, Lord of the Havens? Have we not enough? How many fair trees have been cut short of their lives in this year? She spoke lightly and smiled as she spoke. A man must have work to do upon land, he answered, even though he have a fair wife. Trees spring and trees fall. I plant more than are felled. He spoke also in a light tone, but he did not look her in the face, and they did not speak again of these matters. They're passive aggressive. Yeah, she's like, I picture her saying this through gr- gritted teeth. Like, how many trees have you cut down <laughs> this year? <laughs> like, they're just, they're irritated with yeah. each other. They're pretending to be nice, but uh, then they don't talk about it. They both know that the other is actually irritated. So continuing on. But when Ancalame was close on four years old, Aldarian at last declared openly to Arendus his desire to sail again from Numenor. She sat silent, for he said nothing that she did not already know, and words were in vain. He tarried until the birthday of Uncalame and made much of her that day. She laughed and was merry, though others in that house were not so, and as she went to her bed she said to her father, Where will you take me this summer, Titania? I should like to see the White House and the Sheepland that Mamil tells of. Aldarion did not answer, and the next day he left the house and was gone for some days. When all was ready, he returned and bade Arendis farewell. Then, against her will, tears were in her eyes. They grieved him, and yet irked him, for his mind was resolved, and hardened his heart. Come, Arendis, he said. Eight years I have stayed. You cannot bind forever in soft bonds the son of the king, of the blood of Tuor and Arendil. And I'm not going to my death, I shall soon return. Soon, she said, but the years are unrelenting, and you will not bring them back with you, and mine are briefer than yours. My youth runs away. And where are my children, and where is your heir? Too long and often of late is my bed cold. Often of late I have thought that you preferred it so, said Aldarion. But let us not be wroth, even if we are not of like mind. Look in your mirror, Arendus, you are beautiful. No shadow of age is there yet. You have time to spare my deep need. Two years! Two years is all that I ask. But Arendus answered, Say rather, two years I will take, whether you will or no. Take two years then, but no more. A king's son of the blood of Arendel should also be a man of his word. I've said it once, I'll say it a million times. Aldarion, what a prick. Yeah, I mean, I, he's telling her this line where he says, like, y- you cannot hold in soft bonds the son of the king, the right. blood of Tuor and Arendil. Right, right. 
Like he has an ego here and he's throwing around the weight of his inheritance, of his lineage. Right. To get him out of like a marital spat. It's like, come on. To get him out of a marital spat. What a, like, and I also, you know, he's sort of condescending, like, look in the mirror. You're so, you're beautiful. You're not too old yet. Like, right. <laughs> and the line that really gets me is, is when he sees the tears well in her eyes and they grieve him and yet irk him. It annoys him. It's like, you know, it makes him feel sad, but he's annoyed at her for feeling sad. You know, he feels guilty, but he's mad at her because she he feels guilty. It's like, you're so dumb. But it's also like such a typical sentiment in Leia's like that we've seen play out in these spousal relationships right, of like right. the resentment builds because right. you are made to feel a certain way over right. and over again. But for both of them, yeah. she's made to pine for him and miss him and be alone you know, when she should be ruling a kingdom, you know, alongside him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, yeah, they're both just in a terrible position. But I definitely think he is just such, like you said, such a prick about it. And she would be well her within her rights to just walk away at this point. But again, but she, she gives kind him, of... Once again, yeah. she gives him two years. Mm-hmm. Like, again, she she caves, like, over and over again. Right. We've seen her, con- you know just concede and and give him something and go above and beyond uh, uh and i mean it's, it's kind of a concession it's it's like you know what he's going to leave whether she likes it or not you know so it's there's nothing really she can do so she is in this in a way powerless position we see her so far kind of being powerless to stop him um and she wants him to stay she expresses they're not great communicators but he knows she wants him to stay and he just doesn't care. And he keeps going anyway. Um, and I think that my theory is that her being in that powerless position over and over and over again is kind of what pushes her into this embittered state later in their relationship. Oh, of course. Of course. Anybody would. Yeah, she goes the opposite direction and with good reason. You know, she can only take so much. And she's been left many, many times now. Like, it's his priorities are very clear. Um, so continuing on in the text, the next morning he takes off, he leaves. So from the book, he lifted up on Kalame, his daughter, that's his daughter, and kissed her. But though she clung to him, he set her down quickly and rode off. Soon after, the great ship set sail from Romena. Kirilonde, he named it, Havenfire. But it went from Numenor without the blessing of Tarmanelder, and Arendus was not at the harbor to set the green bow of return, nor did she send... Aldarion is described, um, his face is described as troubled and dark. You know, this is, this all doesn't bode well, uh, this sea voyage. Um, once again, it wasn't blessed. And this, this passage is so devastating because his young daughter, mm-hmm. you know, is crying and he just sets her down like coldly. Right. Like this is so that's, pretty that's damning a line, for Aldarion. That's a line that hit me now harder than it would have before so because i'm a new father and i have now a young daughter and just i'm imagining like if i'm imagining leaving for a two-year trip and i first off i can't imagine leaving a four-year-old and my daughter's younger than four but i can't imagine leaving my daughter for two years right now in her youth like i can't imagine missing that much time in her life at any age but especially at a young age and um you know, especially when she's, and then imagining my daughter like clinging to me and wanting me to stay and then just sort of, oh, I'm going to put you down. See ya. Like, I just can't imagine it. Yeah. It's really terrible. His treatment of 
these women is kind of appalling and uh Rendis is not happy about it you mm-hmm. know obviously uh, it says she sits in her she sits in her chambers alone grieving but deeper in her heart she felt a new pain of cold anger and her love of Aldarion was wounded to the quick she hated the sea and now even trees that once she had loved she desired to look upon no more for they were called to her the masts of great ships so like that's that's significant right there like not only does she hate the sea even more she, it's like he's ruined her love of trees <laughs> right also right. like he's taken so much from her he's taken everything from her even her enjoyment of the things she used to enjoy you know right cuz anger and bitterness and resentment has that effect right it it hurts you more than others really and um, that's why it's so important to forgive and all that. But you, you know, you can't blame Arendis at this point for feeling this way because she's given him opportunity and opportunity and opportunity and, and hope that he would stay with her. And he has continually disappointed her. And this is kind of a turning point in the book, I think, because this is kind of the last time, um, he leaves and this time she's not just missing him. She's not just hurt, but she's angry and it, Angry. This angry, is when it turns. This is the anger. moment. Yeah. Um, and so everything kind of changes after this. And now she has a daughter, right? So this is the first time he's left when they're when they had a child. And now so now they're right. married. It's not they just her, he's leaving. Yeah. Right. And so there's this whole other angle there. And I, I, one thing that I think is important to point out is there is uh, an interesting footnote in the book that talks about how it is normal in Numenorean culture and typical for the man to stay home for an extended period of time when they have a young child. Um, and so typically he would have been expected with a young daughter in the house to stay for much longer than four years. So him leaving, it's not just a, a violation of uh, Arendis's love and you know he's not just hurting her. It's really inconsistent with cultural norms, family norms. Um, in Numenor. So it is really remarkable that he's leaving and notable. Um, and, you know, that's buried in a footnote, so you have to look for it, but it is an interesting point. And so you really are meant to understand uh, this isn't just some acceptable thing that he's doing that Arendis doesn't like. It is really an unusual and unacceptable act to leave your four-year-old daughter if you're a Numenorian man. Yeah, that's a good point. And we've seen him break cultural norms before. He's totally willing to to do that in order to pursue, you know, this obsession that he has. I mean, he did it with not by not marrying Arendis in in the time that was that was customary to do so. He drug that out a long time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he's really on my shit list at this point. I'm gonna continue on. Therefore, ere long, she left Armenelos and went to Amerier in the midst of the isle, wherever, far and near, the bleeding of sheep was borne upon the wind. Sweeter it is to my ears than the mewing of gulls, she said, as she stood at the doors of her white house, the gift of the king, and that was upon a downside facing west, with great lawns all about that merged without wall or hedge into the pastures. Thither she took Encolome, and they were all the company that either had. For Orendus would have only servants in her household, and they were all women, 
and she sought ever to mold her daughter to her own mind, and to feed her upon her own bitterness against men. So she takes on Kalame, her daughter, she takes her exactly where she wants to be, to kind of this place that she's familiar with, and she, I like to imagine that she just sort of establishes this household and sort of like a compound of women. She's like, I've had it, I'm done. She has all female servants, and that's who she surrounds herself with, and just other ladies in waiting. And she's like, "I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I've had enough." Mm-hmm. And I, I like this. I actually like that she takes things into her own hands, and she's <laughs> like, "I am done pining away for you. I'm taking your daughter, who you left, and I'm going. I've had enough." I, who can blame her? Honestly, <laughs> you, you like this? I mean, of course, who can blame what she's feeling? But I mean. To shun what alternative the, does she have? I well, mean, even even she if she were to, to rule, like we don't know at this point, women weren't even allowed to rule. Like later on in Numenorean history, we know women were allowed to be queens, but at this point, they're not even allowed to rule. Like she could sit and wallow in the castle, or she could go and take take charge, and that's exactly right. what she does. And it's just unsurprising given all the disappointment that she has finally thrown up her hands. She's She is done. This is the equivalent, today's equivalent of like, my divorce papers will be sent to your attorney <laughs> and peace, motherfucker. Like, well, I, I know, don't blame her at all. Well, I, I don't blame her for, you know, she leaves and goes back to the country. She had done that once before, you know, when he took a long time getting back and she thought that maybe he died. So she leaves and goes home. I like that, taking her life into her own hands, living where she feels comfortable, not pining away in the capital. I like all that. But obviously there's an element here that goes beyond that where, you know, she is now, we're not going to see any men. I'm not going to let my daughter see any men basically ever. Um, And, you know, she feeds upon her own bitterness against men and she sought ever to mold her daughter to her own mind and and to feed her upon her own bitterness against men. I mean, that's not a good thing. You know, that's too too much of an overcorrection. Perhaps, perhaps, but um, I I think it makes total sense in the arc of her character. Um, oh, of course, of course. I mean, it's, but it it's is, not a surprise yeah, it, that she's going this way at this point. Yeah, so. perhaps, you know, feeding on your own biz- bitterness and stewing is also not really an admirable trait. I mean, and it says later, and I don't think we read this part, but if any messenger came to the house or if any man came to the house, they would soon right away because... There seemed a chill in the house that put them to flight, and they felt constrained to speak half in whisper. It's like, you know, this is not a happy place for a child or for anyone. No one's really happy. No, it's just not happy for men. We don't know that it's unhappy for women or anyone else. Well, we do know it later. Uh, We haven't gotten there yet, I guess. But we do learn later that Arendis doesn't allow any music in the house. And so all the washerwomen and stuff, when they sing, they sing when they're only far away from Arendis. So they kind of have to hide any joy and happiness from Arendis. And so on Kalame, she has to get her joy and happiness and her music away from her mother. You know, she'll run out and hang out with the washerwomen. Well, he has like ruined her. She is, <laughs> I think that's the I, thing. I know, I get it. I get it. Look, I have the, <laughs> I have the, the president and founding member of the uh, Aldarion is a prick fan club. <laughs> fan club. Um, geez. Well, our lovers are now torn asunder. This is a tough place to leave you, but I think we need to leave you here. And 
stay tuned because next week we're just going to take a short break from Aldarion and Arendis and we are going to do a character deep dive. So we're not going to tell you who we're going to talk about next week, but please tune in. Once again, like, share, subscribe. Feel free to write us uh, with anything under the sun and we'll probably ask your permission to read it on the air. And um, yeah, thank you all for joining us. And may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. All right. So for the Grey Havens today, so I've been reading through the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, which is just an awesome collection um, of J.R.R. Tolkien's letters. And he was a vociferous letter writer. He wrote letters through his entire life. Um, he kept up serious correspondence with his sons and he responded to fans. And so there's this just incredible body of letters that people had turned in and, and he had kept records of a lot of his letters and uh, Humphrey Carpenter edited them together. And so it's, you really get to see like a chronology of his life from the mouth of Tolkien. And it's just really, really awesome. So I've been reading through that front to back for the first time. I, I read a letter to um, individually, but never all the way through. And you really get a taste in these letters for his sense of humor. Now, I think fans of the Lord of the Rings, if you've read the Lord of the Rings, you can get a sense of his humor, right, Jen? Don't you think? I mean, there's yes. some funny stuff in there. He's funny. The dialogue yeah. is certainly really funny. Yeah. it's But it's like a, kind of a rustic sense of humor. You know, it's subtle. It's not too sharp. You know, he doesn't have like a lot of pointed humor in there. Although Gandalf can be kind of, his wit can be pretty sharp, right? Gandalf's got some snark. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. But a lot of his humor, it's like rustic humor. He'll have like uh, wordplay jokes in there or as he'll call them, low philological jests, which I love that phrase. That's in Tolkien's own words, referring to his own <laughs> wordplay jokes. And I like uh, less than half of you, half as well as you deserve. Exactly. It's so <laughs> funny, so funny. But it's got like a certain certain quality. And in these letters, you get so much more of that. It's like unfiltered it's, you know, it, it's not edited down to fit into a narrative, narrative with a certain it's tone. It's clever. It's clever. It's clever and sharp. And, you know, he's he's writing letters to his son. So it's it's a little more candid, you know, showing a side of him he might otherwise censor mm. to, to the public. So there's just some really funny stuff in here. And something that I've discovered is that he didn't really care for Americans all that much. Um, I... I don't I think I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> this was America in the 40s, you know, this is the great generation, uh, but he didn't like uh, us all that much back then. And so there's this one letter in particular where this all comes together and I just I really wanted to read it. I think it's so funny. Um it's in 1944, so it's in the midst of the war effort and uh Tolkien, you know, he fought in World War 1. Uh, he's a bit older now, so he's not fighting in the war. He's a professor, but he's still contributing to the war effort in various ways. And he, you know, he's in touch with the military establishment to a certain degree. Um, but here's a, here's a letter to uh, his son, Christopher. And I'll start in the middle of the letter. I won't read the whole thing, but there's a passage uh, that's just great. Saturday was a memorable day, gray, damp, and unpleasing. But I got off about 9 a.m., cycled to Pembroke and deposited bike and lamps, caught the 9.30, which just, I suppose, because I had time to spare, left Oxford on time for the first time in human memory and reached Broome only a few minutes later. I found myself in a carriage occupied by an RAF officer, 
This was Wings, who had been to South Africa, though he looked a bit elderly. And a very nice young American officer, New Englander. I stood the hot air they let off as long as I could, but when I heard the yank burbling about feudalism and its results on English class distinctions and social behavior, I opened a broadside. The poor boob had not, of course, the very faintest notions about feudalism or history at all, being a chemical engineer. But you can't knock feudalism (laughs) out of an American's head any more than the Oxford accent. He was impressed, I think, when I said that an Englishman's relations with porters, butlers, and tradesmen had as much connection with feudalism as skyscrapers had skyscrapers had with red Indian wigwams, or taking off one's hat to a lady has with the modern methods of collecting income tax. But I am certain he was not convinced. I did, however, get a dim notion into his head that the Oxford accent, by which he politely told me he meant mine, was not forced or put on, but a natural one learned in the nursery, and was, moreover, not feudal or aristocratic, but a very middle-class bourgeois invention. After I told him that, his accent sounded to me like English after being wiped over with a dirty sponge, and generally suggested falsely to an English observer that together with American slouch, it indicated a slovenly and ill-disciplined people. Well, we got quite friendly. We had some bad coffee in the refreshment room at Snow Hill and parted. Oh, a scathing, <laughs> scathing description. Slovenly. So good. So it's good. So good. I mean, I I kind of understand that there is a cultural disconnect when it comes to. Like English and British humor, first of all, is really self-deprecating. Uh-huh. And I do think like arrogance is typically associated with Americans. Right, and that right. is brashness. a big old brashness, arrogance. That's such a turnoff for right, right. the Brits. And yeah. I love that he calls them the, the Yanks. Yep. And his accent sounds like English after being wiped over with a dirty sponge. With a dirty sponge. (laughs) Ouch. Ouch. I mean, truth be told, I do prefer an English accent listening. I mean, we're all kind of obsessed with English accents over here, I think. Not me. I it's you know, I love Tolkien and but other than that, I I could care less about English people. I mean, you know, I don't put them above any other people. No, I don't put them above any other people, but I love, I I love any accent, but I do think it's just, it just sounds better to me. I don't know. It depends on the accent, in my opinion. There are some accents that, that English accents that do not sound better. They just kind of sound like, I mean, because there's a, there's a wide variety of accents and some of them, uh, can you do a Cockney accent for me? I have to get it in my head. Um, it's like, it's like the rough, you know, I'm here, I'm down here from, from, I'm from, I don't know where they be from, but it's the really rough one. It's not like. All right. Um, so I actually love that accent. It doesn't make you sound elevated or like smarter, which some, you know, the higher English accents do, but I like it. <laughs> I like it better. I'm going to get awesome. called out if that's not a proper Cockney accent. Right, you know? right. I, you're welcome to call me out. Someone school me in. I'm not an aficionado. If in- someone wants to come on and do, if they can do all the English accents, you know, we'll record. Let's record you and put you on the Grey Havens because I want to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. Regionally, they're all, they are so different and they're regionally here so different. Yeah. Uh, like who oh, did he sure. say, where did he say that guy was from? He was from New England, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a very specific accent. Sure. Very sure. different from mm-hmm. you and I are from Arizona. We actually have the most neutral accent. Did you know that? Of any of the states, right. we mm-hmm. have the most neutral accent um, yeah. linguistically. 
I think I think that's true for Phoenix. Though. I think that changes a little bit once you go up like to Flagstaff. Like I have friends from Flagstaff. Some of them have a little bit more of like a like a cowboy westerny affect to their. It does their change. Voice. Yeah, there's actually a Payson where I'm from. There's like a Payson accent. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it, it, dialect is really specific. But I think that's hilarious. I could see why he would be. He rubbed the wrong way. Um. Well, but th- the thing that I love the best about this and that makes it the most Tolkien is that he just totally savages this guy, you know, tell, yeah. you know he unleashes, <laughs> he says he unleashes a broadside on this poor boob is what he this says. This poor but then, boob. Remember when we used to use boob? I mean, I don't remember. I wasn't alive in the forties, but back, back <laughs> in so the forties. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. back in the forties, Michael, when we had transcendental accents. But after he does this, he just totally lays into this guy. Uh, he says, well, we got quite friendly and they had some coffee and hung out. And then like, you know, it, like there was no bad feelings. It sounds like I'm reading no. through this. And I'm like, oh my God, what a, he's kind of like a jerk. He's giving this guy a hard time. But then you realize he obviously delivered in a way where they could laugh about it and they hung out. They were on it good was terms. all and in good so fun. Token. All yeah. in good fun. Well, Michael, I have an anecdotal parallel. Like this exact thing happened to me in England in an in, in a pub. My husband and I were in England and we watched a match, as they call it, in a pub. Uh, we watched a soccer game yeah. and it was a very crowded pub and we were standing up the whole time and my there was a guy standing right in front of the screen kind of blocking everybody. And my husband, Peter, was like, excuse me, excuse me, sir, could you move aside? Uh-huh. And this guy turns around and he looks angry. He's got a beer in his hand. He looks pissed, but he moves. So like 15 minutes later, he comes at us like this bald. He's drunk and his eyes are re- glossed over. And he's like, hey, oi, you yanks telling a Brit to move aside for a match. No, that's not right. It's not right. You Americans here. And he just lays into us. And he's like, <laughs> you, you like sharks and you like, football what are you what are you doing here with your your beach boys and you and he's just he's like laying into us and we're like we're backing down we're like oh i'm so sorry you know we meant no offense you know no disrespect and so he kind of he sees that you know we're we're being um we're trying to you know get his fur back down and he's like well you know what you know it's what's what's your name and he asks us our name we start chatting and then he's like let me buy you a beer and by the end he's like giving us marital advice and like <laughs> chatting through it all i don't it just reminded me of that story because that's uh, so funny like number one we got called yanks it's not uh-huh. a positive term number two we rubbed him the wrong way with our brash cultural uh faux pas but we made up um and i guess you know, there's hope we can bridge these cultural divides. Yeah, he, he bought you a beer. It's it's all good. And it was all good. <laughs> what? Yeah, ask a guy to move out of out of the way of the TV, and then you get assaulted. That's a little extreme, man. See, that's why I don't like British people. You don't come between the Brits and their soccer, absolutely. <laughs> their football. Sorry, football. Um, yeah, yeah like it's an like idiot a- right now, Jen. Idiot. <laughs> It's like a, it's a different thing. That's the, yeah, we Americans, we're not so obsessed with soccer. No, um, no. But it's we, huge. I, yeah, we're we're obsessed with American football, but I mean, football, football, like soccer football is way bigger worldwide. I mean, Oh, absolutely. I like watching the World Cup personally. Yeah. And we have a, we have a soccer team, football team, but 
I'm just going to call it soccer. I'm an American. We call it soccer here. And it's confusing if I don't call it soccer to other Americans. <laughs> so we have a soccer team down here uh, in Phoenix. I don't know if you know that, but Phoenix Rising. It's like, it's, no, not, a, actually, it's not MLS. I- it's not like, you know, I don't know what all the divisions are, but it's it's kind of like a triple A ball, I guess you could say. It's no way. minor leagues. Yeah. I had no idea. Well, you know, soccer's actually the one place that I know that soccer is actually huge in America is the Northwest. The uh, the Seattle Sounders and the Portland Timbers. They those fans are rabid. They are rabid and it yeah. is huge. It's a huge deal and the games are really fun. Yeah. They're actually a big deal, but it's still probably not on par with, um, you know, in Europe or other these other a lot of other countries. So, right. Um, yeah, but it is a wonderful sport. And yeah, thank you so much for sharing that letter. That was also that was hilarious. And I love I love glimpses into Tolkien's life and his character and any insight we get into that author is is just it just tickles me, Michael. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, you know, having seen that passage and that sense of humor come out in a, in a more um, acerbic way. Maybe that's not the right word, but just like, you know, a sharp, sharp tongued way. I, it kind of makes me read everything else a little differently, like looking for the humor, looking for that wit because it's all there and it's just, he just tones it down just a little, but you can, you know, once you see, realize like how witty his sense of humor is, it just makes me appreciate the subtle wit that shows up in the Lord of the Rings and elsewhere um, that much more. Very true. Very true. Well, thanks, friends, for listening. We'll see you next time. 